You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, I believe it's the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I, I could be mistaken about that, but I think it is. And if so, it's been 45 years. And we've been looking at the pro-life stance this month, like we usually do in January. And, you know, some there's one aspect that we often forget. Pro-life is supposed to pertain to all of life, from a womb to a tomb. And there's one interesting area we usually don't think about. Usually whenever you come to get your driver's license or you vote, you go check off a card at the office where you go to do to register and ask, would you like to be an organ donor? I think most of us say, yeah. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, you're dead. You're not going to be using your organs anymore. Might as well let someone else be helped by them. But maybe, maybe just maybe it is a big deal. And to discuss this, I brought on my friend Scott Henderson. Who is he? He's the Projects Program Coordinator, Associate Professor of Philosophy in the Projects Luther Rice College and, and Seminary. He's got a BA from Florida Bible College, an MAA from Seven Evangelical Seminary, and an MA from Franciscan University of Steubenville, PhD from Duquesne University. He joined the Luther Rice faculty in the fall of 2008. He teaches courses in apologetics, philosophy, and ethics. He's spoken on numerous topics and projects and ethics and bioethics at various ventures and was in the venues and was a contributor to Norman Geisler's Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics and Josh McDowell's New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Moreover, he has served in hospitals in Ohio and Pennsylvania as an in-service lecturer and policy writer and was an advisor and research assistant for the start of Franciscan University's Institute of Bioethics in Steubenville, Ohio. He has also lectured at LCC International University in Klaipeda, Lithuania, and at the Iwangalakana, Wizza, Sokola, Terajinsna, in Rocklaw, Poland. I probably butchered that name horribly. He holds degrees in biblical education, apologetics, philosophy, and bioethics, as well as professional memberships with the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and the Evangelical Philosophical Society, each of which he has presented conference papers. His research interests include issues in apologetics, ethical issues of the end of life, defining death, and organ transplantation. He, his wife, Kathy, and their four children currently reside in Cummings, Georgia. Dr. Henderson, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're in Cummings, Georgia. I've heard there are a lot of strange people in Cummings, Georgia. Is that true? Yes, I've met a few. Mm. <laughs> Any interesting characters yes. you could tell us about? Well, uh, yes, I could. Uh, 
I've met this guy named Nick Peters in coming and another guy named Mike Lycona and another guy named Richard Howe. They all mm. live in, in Cumming, Georgia, and they're all strange characters indeed. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you and I got to know each other personally over the past year and such. You gave me your book in person here. But I've got to know yes. you. Maybe, maybe my audience hasn't got to know you. Tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. It's it's a, a long story, but I'll make it, I'll give you the short version. Um, when I when I finally came to the point I, I wanted to get into academia, I took a path that went in one particular direction, and then I made a couple detours and went in the other direction. I didn't intend to get into the area that I'm in now, but in each degree program, uh, I became interested in, in a particular topic that led me into the next degree program, uh, which was different than what I initially planned. And so uh, when I was in seminary at SES, I knew I wanted to study philosophy. Norman Geiser kind of puts that into his, his students. And so I, I ventured up to uh, Steubenville, Ohio, where I – attended Franciscan University of Steubenville. It's a very orthodox, conservative uh, Catholic university, and they have a really good philosophy department there. And while I was there, um, I, I became interested in bioethics, in particular into the area that, that my book uh, addresses. And how that happened was at a university, you get a lot of really cool things going on. One of them is that they bring in speakers from around the world to speak to uh, the department and the students there. And a pediatric neurologist came to Franciscan when I was a student there and gave a talk on some very interesting studies that he had he had been doing. His name is Alan Schumann. And uh, one of the areas that he talked a lot about was this issue of brain death. And how he was questioning it. And he talked about some of the experiments that he had been involved in and the research he had done. And I thought, I'm really interested in that. That's what I want to pursue. And I found out shortly afterwards that in Pittsburgh, which was only about 30 or 40 miles from Steubenville, uh, at, at another Catholic university, Duquesne University, that they had just started a PhD program in healthcare ethics. And so I inquired about the program, and I was accepted into it when I finished at Franciscan. And when I got there, I knew immediately from the get-go that I wanted to do research and write a dissertation on this topic of brain death. Of course, there's a connection as you begin to explore this topic with organ donation. And what's funny about the whole thing was that in my coursework, whenever I had the opportunity, I would write a term paper, my research paper in, in whatever class I could on that subject, on some element of that subject as a sort of means to uh, get ready for my dissertation. Well, right about the time I had finished my coursework, I found out that there was another student there who had just got, uh, got an acceptance, a proposal acceptance to write on this very topic. And I'm like, oh no, uh, Someone stole my idea, you know, and I remember this student, you know, I was in classes with her and she, I remember her saying, I have no idea what I want to, want to, want to do my dissertation on. And, and I knew what I wanted to do mine on. So I thought it was a little bit unfair that she stole this uh, topic, 
the good news is, is that I went and talked to the director of the program and he said, don't worry about it. He says, as long as you're not duplicating her work. And he handed me her proposal. I read it and, and I said, uh, I'm, I'm not going this direction. I'm going a completely different direction. She's going. So I was able to do it. And uh, the product, of course, is is the book that I gave you a copy of uh, that you've read recently. So that's what that's kind of the path that led me to this area of study. And of course, it has, as you said at the beginning in your introduction, it has a relation, a very strong relation to beginning of life issues, which a lot of pro-life people talk a lot about and often more about than they do the other end of the spectrum, end of life issues to make sure you're consistent uh, in both ends of the spectrum in terms of the argument uh, that you use. So that's a sort of short version of how I got to this, this particular area of study. I'm curious. You said Aaron Schumann is uh, is that the same one from STR? Is it just the name sounds similar? Uh, you mean STR? Was that Stand to Reason? Yes. What? No, no. Okay. Alan Schumann is a neurologist. He's retired now, but he used to teach at I think he was at the UCLA Medical School in California. So okay, uh, I don't think he's the same person at all. No, no, not at all. Now, I remember when we were driving together and we were, I I still remember where we were and you started talking about this theory and I asked a question that Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's usually the same question you get when you ask, when you talk about your thesis about organ donation and such. And I'm not going to say the exact same words, I'll just kind of paraphrase. When I went and filled out my organ donor card several years ago, either when I was learning to drive or when I was, or ever when I was getting my driver's license or when I was registering to vote, did I make a mistake? Um, That's a really good question, Nick. And Mm -hmm. I want to be careful how I answer that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's, it's a tough question because I don't, if the if a mistake was made, I'm not entirely sure it was your mistake. As you know, in my book, I talk about how complicated this issue really is, and one of the major critiques that I offer is a is a critique based upon the legal doctrine of informed consent. And if you recall, in that conversation, I pointed out that. You know, whenever you're going to have a medical procedure done by a physician, you have to sign a consent form. And this is by law, you have to do this. And so this is this is basically to say that the doctor has adequately informed you of all the risks and benefits and possibilities that this procedure entails and that you are agreeing to go ahead and have this procedure done with full knowledge of all of that. And so you do that. The the issue concerning organ donation from my investigation is that it just seems to me that when you go into the driver's license office and they ask you that question and you check a box on the form, are you really being informed as to what you're consenting to? Because I don't think people know and understand what that really means. Uh, And there's a number of cases, Supreme Court cases, that helped develop this doctrine of informed consent that 
pertain to issues surrounding what I think are uh, what I think are important with respect to how organ donation works. A lot of people don't realize that basically they're giving their body over to science, to the medical community, and that the medical community itself stands to profit immensely from your body tissue and or- tissues and organ parts, up to two million dollars profit. And I don't think people know that when they check that box or sign that card. But they, but more importantly, I don't think they know about the controversy surrounding how death is is carried out. I mean, how I don't want to say how it's defined as much as the, the the debates about the criterion of brain death and how that is a is a criterion that has been used uh, for determining death for patients who have been in traumatic accidents. And it's it's used primarily for the purpose of getting fresher organs for transplant purposes. And there's a lot of question about whether that criterion actually is consistent with the definition of death that we as a society say we hold to. So that along with the various medical tests that are used to try to validate that the criterion is, is occurred and whether that criterion is, is consistent with the definition. Uh, those are the controversies that exist, and I don't think people are aware of that. They're also not aware of how organ procurement works, which is a rather gruesome thing to talk about. But all these things, I think, are important in the consent process because informed consent is supposed to be a process. And there's no process that's taking place when you check a box or you simply say yes in an answer to a simple question, do you want to be an organ donor? Mm-hmm. So that's a huge issue, I think, that – again, I, I, I want people to be aware of the fact that I'm not opposed to organ donation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm in favor of it. I just think that there's the means to that end sometimes is, is not clear. It's clouded, and then there are ethical issues that arise, especially when it comes to how – uh, death is determined under certain circumstances, and I and I think we as as uh, people who are concerned about life issues, uh, Christians and even non Christians, we have we have to look at these things very carefully. And you know, as I point out in my book, the people who are talking about these issues constitutes a very small group of people. So there's a lot of ignorance about this issue. Mm-hmm. So. That's that's what I'm getting at here. There's a there's a lot we could talk about here, but I just don't think going to the driver's license office and saying yes or checking a box constitutes informed consent, and I think that's a problem. So uh, that's that's one of the areas we could talk about certainly. Yeah, one area I would like to discuss very briefly, kind of an excursus, but like I said, yeah. I mean we in January I do cover a pro life projects pretty much. Uh, and I touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to hear it from you. What exactly does talking about organ donation have to do with pro-life apologetics? Well, it has everything to do with it in the sense that um, when we say we're pro-life, we mean that uh, we believe that, that life, human life, all human life is intrinsically valuable. Um, I don't – intentionally, I don't use the, the word infinite but intrinsically valuable for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but in saying that, I think we have we recognize that that at the beginning of life we care enough about 
the origin of life. And we have biology on our side to know that life begins at conception, even though that conceptus is very small and constitutes just a handful of cells. Um, we nonetheless believe that that is a human person who, is, who at, the, at that particular stage has to undergo a number of stages of growth, but it's the same substance, the same thing throughout all those stages of growth. And so that's why we, that's why we defend uh, life at its earliest stages. We oppose abortion under most circumstances, and we're against the destruction of embryos for research purposes. Now, when we talk about being consistent on that, there's an argument that we typic- that's typically used among pro-lifers uh, that I really like. It, it, uh, not everybody states it this way, <clears throat> excuse me, but it comes from, I think its best expression comes from Patrick Lee, who was a, a, a professor and then a colleague of mine for a while at Franciscan University. It's the argu- argument from substantial identity, which basically runs like this. Uh, you, and I, you and I are intrinsically valuable because of what we are. What we are is each a human physical organism. Human physical organisms come to be at conception, and that's where you find the biological claim. Uh, and so at every stage of our development, we are the same thing. And so what would make it wrong to kill you and me right now would have been present at every stage in our life up until a natural death when the organism as a whole ceases to be. And so looking at it that way, that kind of segues into why I think this is just important. The question is, has the organism as a whole ceased to be? Has it lost its organizational unity, uh, a thing that is, that is a human person, under the criterion of brain death? And I think there's a lot of reason to suspect that that's not the case. In chapter two of my book, I go into great detail about that from the medical side of things, relying heavily on Alan Schumann's work, but I also look at some other things that have been brought out along those lines as well. And it it just doesn't seem clear to me that uh, the organizational unity of the human person has ceased uh, under the brain death criterion. Um, We have... Many examples of that that I could cite to you, but I don't want to jump ahead of the game here. But if we really care about life and that we want to be consistent in holding to the, the moral norm that the direct killing of an innocent person is always wrong, then if, or if, if the organ procurement surgery is the direct cause of the death of the person, then we're in violation of that moral norm. And so if, uh, if, if brain-dead patients aren't really dead, then it's a moral issue, and it's a big problem, despite the good of, of the tissues and organs that can be gotten, can mm-hmm. be had from the, the procurement surgery. Mm-hmm. So that's why we should care about this, and we should also make sure that we are following traditional norms, uh, and I'm talking about the norms from the Hippocra- Hippocratic tradition and, and the Judeo-Christian tradition, that recognize uh, that there's a difference between killing and allowing to die or ordinary and extraordinary means. All those things come into play in terms of how we assess this, which I bring out in chapter six of my book. Mm -hmm. So that's why we should care about it, Nick. I like that you uh, 
did say that you aren't opposed to organ donation because I think it is important to be careful because if it can seem like you're a lone voice out here saying, hey, we need to uh, do this, that the doctors have us all wrong and such, some people could be thinking, well, geez, Nick, didn't a couple of months ago you do didn't you do a show on conspiracy theory thinking? I mean, how do we know this isn't in the same lineup? I mean, because from the outside, it can kind of sound like that, can't it? Absolutely. In fact, I was invited to uh, be on a radio, a nationally syndicated radio show. And uh, the host of that show, I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, tends towards some of that conspiratory type thinking. Anyway, I agreed to be on the show and it became clear to me that she was anti-organ donation completely. I mean, she she just was opposed to it under any circumstances. And I made it clear that I wasn't. And I have a rather nuanced view of the matter and think that it can be done. You just have to be careful in terms of assessing the means to that that good goal, that good end. And uh, I received some a couple of nasty emails after having been on that show from people who – uh, didn't think I was, who thought I was compromising. I wasn't strong enough to be in terms of my opposition to organ donation. And so there are, there is that fringe group out there. I, I don't want to be associated with them. Um, so I, I thank you for, for highlighting that because sometimes that can be a misunderstanding. Um, simply assessing and criticizing a means to an end that I support. I support the end, but I don't necessarily support this particular means. And I think there are other moral means that can be taken other than this one. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is I don't need to be rushing down to the government office after this show saying, hey, I need to have my driver's license totally redone here and get rid of this organ donation thing, right? Well, I, I, I don't think you have to be drastic on that one. <laughs> I, what I would suggest, however, and this is, a suge- this is what I talk about in the last chapter of my book, what I would suggest is, is that you make sure that, that you have a living will and a, and a medical power of, a, of attorney in order. I mean, if you're serious about this, then you need to make sure that your wishes are, are very clearly stated. And a living will is a good thing. And you can say something about you know, that in your living will, but I would highly recommend that you have a medical power of attorney. That would be your spouse or a parent or whoever who knows exactly what you want. Because I think that you can, you can, you can make clear that you want there to be limitations in terms of what you mean by becoming an organ donor. Because like I said before, uh, a lot of people don't realize that when you sign on to that, that you're basically, and I don't think people realize this. You're basically saying that you you're giving your your entire body over. And uh, I've talked to physicians when I was doing my research for this, who who told me that they've they've watched organ procurement surgeries and they and they say it's just devastating what they do. You'd be shocked in terms of how much of your body parts they take and they use for many different things that a lot of people don't realize. They they take femur bones and grind them up and make dental dust out of them to, that they use in the dentist's office. Um, they they use all kinds of tissues for many different things. Um, 
and uh, some uh, cosmetics are made out of human body parts. So, you know, you got the, you got this going on that a lot of people don't realize. And, um, you know, I talk about this in the book a little bit. And, uh, so I think, I think people would like to know those sorts of things and to say, Hey, I don't want all that going on. I, when I signed on to be an organ donor, I was thinking, you know, maybe my kidneys, my liver, you know, my heart, maybe something like that. But I didn't know that, that, you know, my whole body is going to be cleaned out. I mean, I have, uh, in, in, I believe it's chapter three of my book, I have quotations from mothers who, who in that very difficult time when they were losing a child, uh, were asked if, if they would like to donate their child for organ donation. And in that moment of distress, you know, thinking that maybe they can, you know, find some good out of this tragedy. They agree to it. And then, then when they see their child after the procurement surgery, they say, I didn't realize you're going to do this. This devastating surgery and removal of, this doesn't even look like my child anymore. What have you done? I have multiple testimonies of mothers like that. And so I think it's extremely important that we honor the consent process that people know exactly what they're agreeing to. And so when you discover this, I think you can go back and correct this and say, hey, I only want this to happen. When I say I want to be an organ donor, I want to make it clear that organs, yeah, you know, but you, know, you, can, you can draw limitations in other words. I, I think that's an important thing to recognize. So hopefully that's clear. That makes sense. You know, when I was studying at the SES as well, I took a class, I think it was on a problem of evil under guys, or he was talking about the different ways of things that we consider unfit or used. And he said, does anyone in the class know what ambiguity is? And I was the only one who raised my hand, and he called me and said, Ambiguity is whale vomit that's found on the ocean, and it's used to make perfumes. <laughs> and he said, me, Africa, you're the only one who knew what whale vomit was. And I, I, I went on and thought, someday I should probably have that put on my tombstone. He knew oh, what whale vomit was. <laughs> but oh, anyway, I think, you know, my own wife has been disgusted hearing that some perfumes <laughs> are made from whale vomit. I wonder what I could get out of if I said... And by the way, some of your cosmetics are made from human femurs as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting how many products come from things that we don't know about. Um, and the question is, do you want your body parts to be used for things? You know, uh, it, it'd be good to know. And then there's, you know, the, the profit side of it. How much profit is going to be made, going to be had? based upon your free voluntary donation. A lot of people don't know that either. Um, so, yeah, all those things are important considerations. And some people may not have a problem with it. And we say, I don't care, you know, that's yeah. fine with me. Yeah. And that's fine with me too. But it may not be fine for everybody. Yeah. Now, organ donation, I mean, uh, I know the millennials be shocked often to hear about events going on before they were born and such. But organ donation is still a relatively new thing, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, the uh, 
actual first successful organ transplant, uh, which was a kidney transplant, I believe took place in the late 1950s. Um, and uh, the only reason it was successful was because it took place between identical twins. A physician transplant took a kidney from one twin and transplanted it into another twin. And this was this was before uh, uh, the development of immunosuppression drugs. And a lot, some people may not realize that uh, when it comes to organ transplantation, it's it's not a permanent fix. The problem that 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 comes to be is that the immune the immune system of a person's body will treat that foreign entity uh, as something that has to be destroyed, and so the immune system will attack it. And uh, and and so because it, it, it's not a genetic match, and so in the 1960s they began to develop immunosuppression drugs, which allowed for kidney transplants to really kick in. And so we see this in the 1960s, the first organ transplants were kidney transplants. No one was transplanting hearts and livers and lungs yet at that point. Um, but the problem was that these suppression drugs were very strong. Uh, and what happened was that that leaves the patient susceptible to other problems while it's suppressing the immune system so it doesn't you know, kill the uh, kidney, it allows for other problems that typically the immune system can ward off. So people have other diseases that arise in their bodies as a result of these uh, immunosuppression drugs. Um, now, we've gotten a little bit better with that, but it's still the case that you can't completely suppress the immune system because you'll die without it. And so basically it just slows down the immune system as it attacks that organ. Eventually the immune system will kill the invading organ. It just takes longer for that to happen. That's why uh, uh, transplant recipients have to be monitored constantly. So it's not a permanent fix. And most, most transplants that occur today occur among people who are getting another transplant because their original transplant over time has gone gone bad. And so I guess the medical community feels we owe it to them to give them another, you know. So um, a lot of people don't realize that factor as well. There, there, there are a lot of side effects to organ transplantation. Mm-hmm. How does it relate to what we see in the media? I mean, I know that two series my wife and I enjoyed. We saw most of the series House, and we're watching The Good Doctor regularly, which we both thoroughly enjoy. And both those shows would often have themes of organ transplantation and such. Um, yeah. How accurate is what we see in the film and media to what we see, to what really happens? Well, uh, I, I can't speak to the... to those particular shows, but I think in general, there's a lot of inaccuracies that occur in television and movies about a lot of things, um, Mm. about general practice of medicine. Mm. Um, take for example, something that we see all the time, CPR. Most of the time CPR is done in a movie or in a TV show. It looks pretty simple. 
And most of the time it works. That's the exact opposite of the way it is in reality. CPR is a very violent procedure and it crushes, it crushes and breaks ribs and cartilage and has a devastating effect on the patient when it's done vigorously, which it has to be done vigorously because what you're doing is you're compressing the heart against the spine to uh, force blood through the arteries so you can keep oxygenated blood going to the brain because if that stops, then within a matter of minutes, the person will be dead. Um, so that's, that takes a, it takes a good deal of effort and it's violent. Um, and it doesn't work as often as the movies portray it, portray it to work. Um, it's a temporary thing until we can get some, until help can be obtained so that a tube can be ins inserted down the trachea and they can do manual uh, uh, ventilation for the person until they can get them into a hospital setting and, and, and do proper procedures. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example. But like I said, organ donation is often portrayed in movies, at least the ones that I've seen, as a fix-all for the person. Right. Like they're going to have a normal life after that, but they're not. Uh, they're not going to have a normal life because they have to take these suppression drugs and these suppression drugs will cause them to have other problems. And it maybe down the road, they're going to need another organ because eventually the, the immune system will damage that organ that has been transplanted. So uh, there, there's a reality here that sometimes is not portrayed uh, in popular culture in the movies that we watch. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about organ donation, there's always, of course, a problem of limited supply and such. Uh, how sure. does the science of cloning affect this? Have you looked into that any? I, it depends on which direction you want to go with that. Um, mm -hmm. the, a lot of this stuff is purely theoretical at this point. But, you know, there, I don't know if you remember the movie that came out a number of years ago called The Island. I don't know if you ever saw that. No. Nope. But it was, it's about an imaginary future in which you could take out an ins insurance policy where they would clone you, but they would not, um, they would manipulate the clone so that, at least they told people this, that so that consciousness would not arise in your clone. And that somehow diminished your concern about it being a human person. Um, turns out that in the movie anyway, that they actually weren't able to sustain the viability of these clones without giving them consciousness. And so they created an, an environment called the island where these people uh, lived and they were deceived into thinking that they had their own lives. And they really what they were being used for was when the person who took out their insurance policy was in need of body parts, they would go in and take the clone and they would take the body parts from the person and use it. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that's that's a theoretical side of things. And and that is actually talked about in the uh, academic literature, those kinds of sort of uh, thought exper experiments to help us, you know, fl uh, flesh out the moral implications of these different ideas. Um, there, but there is some promising stuff on the horizon, it seems, that I talk about a little in my book as well, about the possibility of of taking your own own body tissue. Uh, let's say you have 
a damaged liver and you're in need of a liver transplant, if they could, they can take some of the healthy cells in your liver and grow a, a healthy liver for you in the laboratory and then transplant it into you. Um, there's talk of that. Uh, there's some experimentation being done along those lines. We have, last I checked anyway, successfully transplanted uh, bladders in people. And the means of attaining those bladders was taking a defective bladder, uh, a cancerous bladder or diseased bladder, and taking the good cells that were still left and growing a new bladder for that person and then transplanting it. The huge benefit of that Nick, is that no immunosuppression drugs are necessary because it's coming from the same DNA. It's coming from the, the person who is going to receive that. And uh, that would, I, I talk about the prospects of that in my book because I think that would be a great thing. If we, it, would, it would solve a number of problems. It would solve the immunosuppression problem. It would also help solve the shortage problem that you mentioned earlier. Um, the shortage problem, though, is, is an interesting thing to talk about because, and I'm not meaning to change the subject here, but I just want to just give you a footnote here. The moment that we found out that we could do this, there was a shortage problem. The technology itself came with a shortage problem. So that's what I find interesting about it. We talk, we've talk; we been talking about an organ shortage problem from the get-go. You know, as soon as we figured out we can transplant kidneys, oh, we have a shortage. Well, of course. <laughs> Look at how you have to get them. You know. So anyway. Yeah. the The main problem you have in the book, apparently, is with with this idea called brain death. What exactly is yes. brain death? Well, um, brain death is uh, defined as the uh, irreversible cessation of all functions of the brain, including the brain stem. So that's, that's what the definition is, okay? So the question that arises is, does that definition, this is only one leg of the, of the problem, does the definition comport with the definition of death that we uphold. And the definition of death that we uphold is that a human person dies when the organism uh, as a whole ceases to function permanently, okay? Loses permanent organic functioning, okay? So it's the organism as a whole loses its permanent function. So does brain death as a criterion correspond consistently with that definition. So that's one question. The other question is, do we have adequate medical tests to diagnose the criterion brain death? And so you got those three categories. And the critique that I go through in my book is I look at each of those and look at their relations. And I argue that there's complete incoherence here. None of the things work. The testing criteria that's applied to determine brain death doesn't test all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem. It's a handful of tests that are used, and they're not always used consistently. In fact, as I point out in the book, 
there's a good deal of latitude in terms of how in ter- terms of what tests are applied. In fact, there are approximately 40 different sets of testing criteria that are available today for testing that one criterion. Now, that creates problems because depending on which uh, which group of tests you use, in one place a person could be could meet the standard, and in another place they may not meet the standard. So there's inconsistency there. And then on the other hand, you have the uh, criterion when all functions of the of the brain, including the brainstem, cease to function permanently. Um, does that correspond to the definition of death? And I provide evidence that suggests that it doesn't, primarily the work of Alan Schumann, uh, where he examines some 175 cases of brain death cases, and he looks at, this, he looks at them to see if, in fact, you can, you can derive what proponents of brain death say is going on. And he says, no, you cannot. Uh, it's, you just can't do it. And uh, so there are problems in all three of those areas, Nick, is, is what, I, what I have come to uh, in my book. So there's a lack of coherence that exists there. Of course, the traditional criterion of death is called the cardiopulmonary criterion. That's when all functions, the, the cardiopulmonary functions permanently cease. Then we can say that the uh, human person has organizationally died. It's lost permanently lost organizational function. And so, just like in the at the beginning, at the outset, when I talked about the pro-life argument that's typically used, uh, you and I are intrinsically valuable because of what we are. What we are each is a human physical organism. So when the human organism, human physical organism, ceases to be an organism. Like in uh, what what is what is it after that? Well, there's no longer organizational unity, mm-hmm. you know. And so you can see it's a nice fit for an Aristotelian Thomistic approach to to the relations of you know form and matters, uh, uh, the substance view as it's called. And uh, so this is why it's attractive to me and attractive to a lot of pro-life people because many pro-life people are Christians who you know follow that that tradition, follow that approach. So anyway, I hope that's not too scattered, but uh, yeah. there I, it is. <laughs> I, 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 but I think, I think it, Gary Habermas has said a few times, because he's given talks on near-death experiences and such, or he says first, the word death isn't cut and dry, because there are no. so many stages, biological death and such, because some right. people have technically come back from death. But then he says, then there's brain death. And mm-hmm. once this happens... You're dead. You're mm. not coming back. Yeah. So, I mean, is that still accurate? Or is well, it not- let's, yeah, we got to be careful how we talk through that one. Um, he's right. There is this thing called cl- clinical death, and clinical death occurs when basically cardiac arrest occurs, or when the person stops breathing and their heart stops beating. Of course, we know that that can be restarted. Not always, but it can be, and so. Clinical death can can uh, lead to human death, but just because it has occurred in a, one particular instance doesn't mean instant doesn't mean that it's necessarily permanent. You kind of have to wait and see. If we can't get the heart started again, 
then it may be permanent. And at that point, we can say that the person's not coming back. We know that the necessity of oxygenated blood cycling through the body is no longer there, and therefore, organizational unity is gone. That's different than brain death, because in brain death, there's still oxygenated blood pump being pumped by the heart through the body. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, there is a ventilator that is blowing air in the lungs, but the heart's still beating and blood's still flowing. And so, brain death is a little bit is is a lot different kind of criterion than cardiopulmonary. So, yeah, th- there are these different ways to define it. But to say that a person is dead because they're not, you know, it's irreversible, there's a sense in which that's true, um, but, but it doesn't answer the question as to whether is brain death may be irre- irreversible, but is brain death human death is, is the question we have to ask. Um, and, you know, you, see, you probably have seen in the news media at times uh, stories that pop up about this person was declared brain death and then they came out of it later. Mm-hmm. You know, you know they, they were un- permanently unconscious or whatever, and then they regained consciousness. Mm-hmm. They were thought to be brain dead. Have to be really, really careful with those kinds of cases because brain death is a misunderstood uh, term. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's applied wrongly to particular other other to uh, cognitive states such as vegetative states, minimal consciousness, and com- different types of comas. Uh, probably the one that's you know most familiar to people more recently is the Terry Schiavo case. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah. That? But- I don't remember even about but a girl in Florida was pretty much declared dead. And the debate was, do we pour a plug on that? Right? Yeah, it's about removal of, of the feeding tubes, basically. Mm-hmm. Nutrition and hydration was being supplied uh, to her by feeding tubes. And and uh, the it's kind of a long case, and I don't want to sidetrack us, but you know, she was – diagnosed as being in a permanent vegetative state. And her husband, Michael was his name, he petitioned the court to have her feeding tubes removed so that she could be allowed to die a natural death because he believed that that was her wishes. She would not want to be kept alive in this, her body be kept alive in this state. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's how he argued. Her parents, on the other hand, sued him, went to court challenging that they 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 didn't believe that her daughter was dead and they wanted to, they believed that she would want to be kept alive it was a big a big mess the news media butchered the issue um anyway make a long story short uh after many many appeals the parents lost every one of them and the tubes were removed and terry was allowed to die um, but she was not brain dead that that's the thing um she was in a uh, she could breathe on her own okay she didn't need a ventilator. That's one of the keys in recognizing the distinction between a vegetative state and brain death. So she wasn't on a vent, but she was confined to a bed. She couldn't get up and walk around. Um, she had to be fed with a feeding tube. And uh, you know, people in vegetative states do have sleep and wake cycles. 
so it gives the impression that that uh, to some people anyway that that these people are very much very much aware but they're you know neurologists tend to say they're not there's debate about all this nick so it's, mm-hmm. it's you know i know uh that one neurologist diagnosed her as being in a minimal conscious state which is different than a permanent vegetative state so a lot of controversy about that but one thing we nobody would disagree with and that is that she was brain dead but she wasn't brain dead she was very much not under that category um but there are those who think that and i talk about this in chapter six in my book i believe there are those who believe that um people in persistent or permanent vegetative states should be declared dead and that we should be able to use their body parts for transplantation purposes. There are those who advocate for that, um, which is a little bit scary to me, but I mean, it's there. Um, so there are, those distinctions are, are important. And this again goes back to the original contention that I had, namely there's got to be some informed consent here. You need to know what's going on. Um, the surveys that you in my book that I'm sure that you saw indicate there's a good deal of confusion. Even among practitioners, even among med- in the medical field, there's confusion about these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, something I am wondering about here, and it's unrelated kind of the organ donation thing, but it does get into a number of projects areas that what you're saying is, here today, we can still have a hard time telling if someone is truly, truly dead, even for our advanced medical technology, where mm-hmm. there are some skeptics who are saying, well, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't truly dead on the cross either. I mean, if we can't tell, maybe <laughs> they couldn't either. So I'm wondering, I know it's unrelated to the thesis yeah. of your book, but I'm kind of wondering what you would say to someone <clears throat> like that might be thinking, aren't you kind of undermining another central tenet of your faith saying this? I hope not. <laughs> oh my! Uh, well, here, here's the deal, Nick. The, the, these conditions that we have today, that we were just talking about, that that call in the question whether we can say that someone is dead, were all created by our medical technologies, technologies that did not exist up until the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't think it's applicable to. You know the issue that you raise with regard to Jesus, because we we're talking about apples and oranges here. The, the reality is, when it comes to the death of Christ, there's there's plenty of evidence that the unless you just flat out don't believe the Gospels, that that Jesus had in fact died. Um, the scene around the cross indicates that. You not only do you have the spear uh, being shoved into the side of Jesus, where the blood and water came out. But you have an acknowledgement by those around him that he had died uh, there on the cross. His legs were not broken because it wasn't necessary to do that to speed up the death. It was recognized by the by the Roman soldiers there that he had died, and so they would have broke his legs if there was a question about that. So, um, you know, I I I don't think that they are necessarily related for the reasons that I said. This these conditions did not exist in the ancient world because they didn't have the medical technologies that created these conditions. It's, it's ironic that as great as our medical technologies are, that they create new realities uh, 
medical realities that we have to contend with mm-hmm. uh, that simply did not exist in the past. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as permanent vegetative state or minimal conscious state or brain death up until the invention of two things, flexible plastic tubing and ventilators. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't call them respirators because that's, that's inaccurate. Respirate, they don't respirate. Your lungs respirate. Ventilators, they blow air into your lungs. Uh, before the invention of those things, people just died. You know, they, they, they weren't suspended. The dying process wasn't, wasn't caught and they weren't suspended at a particular stage in the dying process, which is what we have today and why these medical realities exist, why these conditions exist. So that's how I would answer that, that mm-hmm. question. Yeah, yeah, I... I When I was uh, reading your book, I took my wife to see a sleep doctor here in Cumming once. And she saw us reading because it's got a picture of like a human brain under an x-ray and such. Yeah. My wife thought you got it from house there. I'm not sure. <laughs> But anyway, she, this doctor asked me about it. And I told her what it was about. And said, it's questioning the criterion of death and such. And she says, oh, it's brain death. I mean, that's... Kind of uh, what's under question, but I think a whole lot of mm-hmm. doctors really would reply the same way, wouldn't they? Yeah, most of them would. Um, I I was interviewed, uh, I think it was Channel 2 here in Atlanta, I was interviewed um, on this subject right after my book came out. And my counterpart in the interview was a neurologist, I believe at Emory Hospital in Atlanta. And she was just extremely confident that brain death is death. And that's certainly a question that I think is that people raise. Why, are, why is the medical field so sure that brain death is death? And here you are, you know, representing this really small minority position, challenging all of this. And I think it's a good question. And, and I think I have an answer to it. I would say two things. Um, number one, The reason these folks are, are so confident is, for one thing, they're the product of a professional herd mentality. This is what they've been taught in medical school. It's a, it's a part of the, the, can, the canonization of, medical, of the medical field. Um, it's like this is the orthodoxy that's out there. And so typically people don't challenge those things when they're trained in medical school. They're not, they don't challenge them. And this is the second reason because uh, – They, they, they don't spend time researching it. There's just a handful of people that are doing the study and doing the research in this area. And what's interesting is, is that so many of these people who are in fact involved in this area question it. And they come from different perspectives too, Nick. They're not all like me. They don't come from a Judeo-Christian perspective. Uh, some of these people who, who are very critical of brain death are advocates of higher brain death or what's called neocortical death. In other words, these are the, this is the position that says that people like Terry Schiavo should be considered dead. They, they don't think brain death works. You know? Of course, they're, they're coming at it from a, you know, a different philosophical position than I do. Um, they're radical dualists in my view. I'm not a dualist, a radical dualist anyway. Uh, I have to be careful how I say it. I want people to think I'm, I'm a materialist monist, but... I, I'm, I'm not a dualist. I don't think the Judeo-Christian tradition is dualistic. Now, there are some dualisms that exist within it, 
but I think they're wrong. Um, I hold more to a a what could be described as the hylomorphism uh, that Aquinas advocates. Um, I think that makes out of the different forms of dualisms. I think that makes the most sense. But anyway, um, so I, I think that for those reasons, number one, they've just embraced the orthodoxy. Number two, they've never investigated it themselves. That's why these people speak with the confidence they do. And you've been in apologetics long enough, Nick, to know this, that that takes place in Christian theology as well, in biblical studies and so on, that a lot of times people don't even bother to question the so-called orthodoxy that they've they've been mm-hmm. told is this is this is what all Christians have always believed, you know, and and you know, the moment that you say, Hey, wait a second, I, I I'm not so sure this is right, all of a sudden, you know, the inquisitors show up. So, you know, it, people begin to look at you funny and all that. So anyway, this is the position I often find myself in and I've experienced it firsthand. Um, I could tell you stories about about that experience as well if you wanted to hear them. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of thinking. I don't think it's a Christian or a medical problem. I think it's a human problem. I mean, as soon as you talk about the orthodoxy not being challenged, I thought immediately of arguing with uh, people who are internet atheists and who right take on positions like the Memphis position or just say right. the same old tried arguments against the New Testament over and over. I mean, this is just something that yeah. we all do today, sadly. Sure. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know if you want to hear a story. Do you got time for that? Give us a quick story. Okay. Um, I was invited to speak in Seattle, Washington at the Catholic Medical Association. And this is a big deal. I, I couldn't believe that I was invited. This is an international conference. I was a faculty speaker there. And I, I spoke in a plenary session, and the really cool thing about it was that some of my sort of mentor heroes were there. Uh, some of the people that I cite in my book happened to be there. Among them was Alan Schumann. He and I kind of partnered, and we did a dual presentation, and uh, he presented the medical side. I presented the philosophical side, criticizing brain death. And during the question and answer time, uh, it was amazing to see the resistance that people put up uh, against us. And I had a couple of encounters with people one-on-one when we were, you know, after after our the question and answer time, when you sort of mingle with people, I had people come up to me and say to me that I was teaching things in violation. Now, I'm not Roman Catholic, but they were saying, you're teaching things in violation to official Roman Catholic teaching. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about here? You know, and I called I called my uh, former professor and colleague Pat Lee at Franciscan uh, University, and I asked him about that. And he said, "No." Nah. He says, "Unfortunately, we have our own fundamentalists in, in our in, in Roman Catholicism that they think they 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 have their ideas of what official Catholic teaching is, and oftentimes it's not right, you know, uh, and and it, it is in fact not correct that." I was, you know, teaching things contrary to it's what they had in their heads, what they thought in their minds was a, official Catholic teaching. So I've run into that from time to time, not just with Catholics, but with evangelicals as well, of course. So anyway, that was an interesting experience because, you know, when you finish a piece of research, 
that you spent years working on and you think, wow, I think I've made a pretty good case here and you're convinced of it and you present it to people and they're not, you're a little puzzled by that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you're like, how can they not see this? You know, why are they resisting so strongly to me? You know, and then you gotta, you gotta bear some things in mind. And, you know, one of those is that they've been told things, you know, that this is the way things are. And, this is what everybody, this is, this is the consensus view, you know, and all of that. And, and here this young buck right out of, right out of, you know, graduate school thinks that he knows better than the consensus. And so you get that resistance and, and then there's the psychology behind it as well. Uh, uh, some people have gotten mad at me because, um, they, they see me as, as questioning the good thing that they've done, you know, and that's, that's where it really gets hard. You know, I, I labored over a decision to give my child over for organ procurement because my child was in was brain dead. And here you're telling me that I may have killed my child. That that's a really tough one uh, to have to deal with, and and people get very upset about that kind of thing, Nick. So you know, you run into that from time to time as well. Mind everyone, you listening to the Deeper Wireless podcast? We got Scott Henderson on my, as my guest talking about his book, Death and Donation, and look at a organ transplantation, how that affects pro life ministries. But if you're here next week, uh, we're gonna have Nancy Piercy as our guest here. I've been wanting to have her on for a while. She's come out with a phenomenal new book. I'm still reading through it, but this is a big game changer here. It's and uh, I really want you to be here. It's when it's called Love Thy Body. So next week, Nancy Piercy is going to be my guest. But let's get back to Scott Henderson talking about his book, Death and Donation. Now, Dr. Henderson, you are talking about hydomorphism and such. And I do mm-hmm. think it'd be good for our audience to go into the philosophical sides of his question and such. I, I would say the body soul thing... I still, even from a Thomistic perspective, have a very difficult time understanding how it all fits out, even after taking a metaphysics class and such. So right. when we're talking about hylomorphism, I mean, what exactly do we mean? Well, it's, it's, it's often a good idea to, when you're introducing a difficult concept to start off with, a, with something you want to contrast it with. So um, I would contrast it with two other views um, one, this all has to do with the the relationship between the body and soul, um, and I find that a really common folksy Christian view that people have with regard to the makeup of a human person is that a human person subsists or consists of two substances, namely a body and a soul. This is called substance dualism, and I think it goes back as far as as I know to Plato. Plato, 
who believe that we are souls that inhabit bodies. We are essentially souls that, that live in, in bodies. So bodies are superfluous to what we are. And in its more modern form, Cartesian dualism. And as as you know, uh, Descartes had a had a difficult time trying to show how these radically different substances could interact with one another. And the way that he tried to solve that problem, nobody, I think, today would accept. But um, if you go to Thomas Aquinas, he recognized that there has to be a very close relation between body and soul, between, as you know, in Aristotelian terms, you know, you got the form, the form and matter. So uh, the reason for that very close relation, I think, is due to the fact that we see that there are soulish operations that are very much tied to a to the functioning body apparatus apparatus of that that if if the bodily aspect of 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 the of those functions is lost then it affects the soulish aspect of those functions so for example aquinas was no dummy. He knew that if you hit somebody in the head hard enough, it's going to affect their mental <laughs> mental abilities. And uh, so, obviously, there must be some kind of connection between the physical apparatus and the soul. I mean, there there's, must be a really close relation that exists there. And Aquinas taught that that uh, this close relation is seen in our lived everyday experience. And I think that's right. Uh, I think if you're going to hold to this, if you're going to believe, if you believe that there's a soul, then then this seems to me to make the most sense in terms of working this stuff out, the the relationship there. Of course, we don't know exactly how that works. Uh, no one's been able to explain it. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Just because you can't say how it works doesn't mean that, you know. It's the how that fallacy uh, my good friend Eric LaRock talks about. Um, just because you can't explain how doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And it, that's always been the big struggle in philosophy of mind today. It's called philosophy of mind, but anthropology, uh, the relationship between the body and soul. How, how, do you, how do you reconcile that close relation? Yeah, I've, uh, I've usually given the example – my wife out about scamping, I say, you know, and I could walk over to you right now, get up, walk over, put my arms around you, give you a kiss and tell you I love you. I can do all those things easy as can be. I could not tell you how I do any of those things. I right. just do them. I mean, it's kind of like right. picture going to someone and trying to teach them how to walk. I mean, what do you what do you say? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's a good example. Mm -hmm. It fits, fits with the how that fallacy that I was mentioning earlier. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, if you recall in my book, I tried to, I spent chapter four trying to sort of build a, and you know, a, a philosophical basis for, for the purpose of helping people understand how the substance view works so that you can see how it's played out in the argument from substantial identity. And then looking at that at the other end of the spectrum under the brain death criterion, 
we can still we, we we can still say there's a substance still present here. Now, not everybody agrees with me on that. I, my my uh, former professor, I mentioned a couple of times, Pat Lee from Franciscan University. He doesn't agree with me. He thinks a substantial change has occurred in the brain death uh, patient. Um, now, what's interesting about him is that he's changed his mind a couple of times on this. So maybe he'll change his mind again. I don't know. But uh, anyway, it's it's a tough thing. I mean, it's 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 very uh, abstract uh, philosophical uh, uh concepts that we're dealing with here to try to work this out. But I think I, I think if we just recognize that, yeah, we are composed of different parts, but we're but but we're we're greater than the sum of those parts. I mean, this helps you to work out this idea of of the what a substance is. Mm-hmm. The there we we are essentially a unified whole of properties and parts that are internally structured and we have lower order and higher order capacities and functions and the higher order capacities depend upon the functionality of lower order capacities. We see this hierarchy uh, with within us. Um, and so uh, we we recognize these concepts, these ideas, and we try to put them together in a way that makes sense. And this is where the substance view comes from. It recognizes that at heart, what we are is we, we are a substance. We belong to a specific kind of thing that has essential features or properties um, that when those, those are lost, the, the thing ceases to be what it was. And uh, you, know, you can talk about accidental uh, powers and properties that can come and go that don't affect the substance. So, you know, I, I work through this in, in that chapter in the book. Yeah, one of the things I think is particularly puzzling about this for me trying to figure out is that I do think there's something to so many counts of near-death experiences where mm. there's definitely an aspect of a person's being <clears throat> that exists separately from their body. And I think there's something of this in the Bible as well, that when a person dies, they are still somehow existing and still have some form of consciousness and such. And it, it, it's just really difficult to piece together many times. Absolutely it is. And um, I actually wrote a master's thesis on near-death experiences while I was at Franciscan University. And in that that thesis, I that's when I first started sort of working through the different definite different definitions of death and so on we, we talked about earlier clinical death and brain death and and you know how does the electroencephalogram measure brain function the EEG and all that you know and and I learned quite a good bit about that in the process of writing that that particular thesis uh, I will say however that contrary to Gary Habermas I don't think near-death experiences get us as much as he thinks they get us in terms of helping helping explain some of these things. Um, there's just there's too many too many things that can be accounted for outside of postulating cognitive mental experiences apart from the body. Um, I'm, in other words, I'm a little bit skeptical about what NDEs can get us, what kind of explanatory power they really hold for us, but. You're right. I mean, there there does seem to be there does seem to be some precedence for thinking that that there can be some kind of 
conscious awareness apart from the body the person has. And even Aquinas struggled with that. Um, he, uh, he recognized that because of his view, his hylomorphism view, that certain powers of the soul cease to function unless they're in, in unity with the body apparatus. And so how do you, how do you maintain the person uh, apart from the body? And he struggled with that, and he kind of speculated a little bit in saying that, you know, maybe maybe God provides a temporary uh, apparatus or something to hold that, you know, hold those powers into being during the intermediate state. Um, of course, as a Roman Catholic, he had to say that because he's got to keep these saints active. And mm. uh, so, you know— there, there is that struggle again, going back to that difficulty in trying to account for those sorts of things. Um, so I, I'm not really sure how to work it out. Um, I'm not worried about it, to be honest with you. I think the, I think the position that I take in my book can be embraced by a number of different uh, models of consciousness or anthropology. I mean, if you're if you're a physicalist, I think you can find my view to be persuasive if you are open to it. Um, I don't think it necessarily requires that a person be a substance dualist in order for it to work. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make an appeal in my book to that particular crowd. That's why I emphasize it the way I do. But I don't think it's necessary, necessarily the case, I should say, that only you know, how people who hold to hylomorphism or substance dualism are going to be persuaded by my position. No, I... I I don't say that. In fact, I, I'm, I say very clearly that what we are essentially is each a human physical organism. I think everybody everybody can agree with that unless you're a radical dualist, you know. Um, and there's some really bizarre dualisms that exist today that come from secularists, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad you mentioned booking because some people are listening to be thinking, this is all a very interesting philosophical excursion and such, but what does it have to do with organ transplanting? <laughs> what does this theorizing have to do with organ transplantation? Yes. Well, um, the, the there's so many things that are involved in, in all this. That's why there's seven chapters in my book. Each chapter is dealing with a different area that contributes to how we think about all these things, how we think about things in general. And whether a person acknowledges or, or not, they have a philosophical concept of what a human person is. Uh, they, may not, they may not state it up front, but it's there. And uh, so the issue I begin with dealing with it from a historical perspective and looking at chapter one, the historical uh, context in which this whole thing emerged. And in chapter two, I look at the medical side of things. Chapter three, I look at social policy. In chapter four, I look at philosoph- uh, philosophical side of it. In chapter five, I'm looking at alternatives. Uh, and in chapter six, I'm providing the overall moral evaluation, ethical evaluation. And in chapter seven, I'm, I'm proposing some, some uh, uh, ideas for shaping um, – so, uh, future social policy on the issue, and so it, it all it all 
works together, um, all these things contribute to the overall picture. Mm-hmm. So you can't just dismiss philosophy because it's too hard. Um, I tell you the hardest chapter in my book to write was chapter three on social policy. I mean, trying to learn all the legal connections and the differences between you know, different types of law and how those law, how case laws determined and so on. Um, I took two, I took two classes at Duquesne University in, in uh, law to, and these helped me quite a bit to kind of come to grips with that and looking at how statutes are written and how they are applied and how, how uh, uh, judges make rulings and how courts and, and, what precedent is and how it works itself out and and all of that all of that contributes to the overall picture here because we live in a very diverse society and um, there's a these issues are not just simple they're complex so the philosophical side is is very important it's an important contributor uh, to it uh, at the very at the at the very least in terms of being able to making a, a critical assessment and evaluation in terms of coherency of what is proposed to be the support basis for why we should accept brain death, which, as I said, I find at fault. I find incoherent. Yeah, I, I give that some point, but I think I'm still wondering, why do we need to know a relation of a body and the soul in order to understand concerns of organ donation? Okay. Um... Well, I think it goes back to the argument for substantial identity that I talked about earlier. That argument is steeped in the philosophical concepts that I that I alluded to earlier. And you know, most people don't necessarily have to come to a complete full understanding of how all that works because I think the argument's pretty straightforward. Um, the problem comes when you encounter opposition to that argument. So when you have people who are suggesting um, that, well, I don't, I don't believe that that the human person is merely a human physical organism. I believe a human physical organism and the human person can can coincide, but the person is separate from the human organism. Well, now we're talking about a different philosophical conception of the human person, and so all of that factors into um, the, you know, the at the end of the day whether the argument is is sound that I'm using to deal with the question of whether the person is dead or not, because at the end of the day, that's what it means. Uh, you cannot take unpaired vital organs from a person unless they're dead. That's the law. That's called the dead donor rule. And so how do you know when a person's dead? Well, that's essentially a philosophical question, isn't it, Nick? Mm-hmm. Because you can look at physiological realities and draw different conclusions based upon your philosophical starting points. So I think I think that the philosophical element here is essential. A person, like again, a person doesn't have to necessarily come to grips with all of that to make a decision about whether they want to be an organ donor or whether they want to limit the you know what they're going to donate. Um, I think there's enough in my book. To help guide a person towards making that decision, at least based upon recognizing the violations of informed consent that exist currently under that standard. So I don't know if that I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. I'm trying to. <laughs>
I like your mind, everyone at this point, and you're listening to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and hopes everything we're doing here, it does depend on you. You know, and I want to give a word, I want people listening to the show and such, and I could use your support in that, I really could. And just... Last week when we had George Delgado and I had someone come in when they saw he was coming and said, hey, that, that was my suggestion. You used it. Yeah. Because I try and listen to you all and do what you want and such. If I can, if I think it's reasonable, if I think it's a good fit, which I mean, my final call is mine, but I'm always open to suggestions. Now, if you want to help us out and support us, a thing to do is to go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. That's my website. And there's a link on the site. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. When you click on that link, you'll get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation. You get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll make sure we get your donation and it will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks that I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, or God and Natural Disasters, or Christian Answers of Rich Generations Questions. And then another thing you can do to support us, you can go to our our jewelry store online. Right? We've got a jewelry store. And guys, Valentine's Day coming up, you, you want to be doing some of this jewelry store, okay? Because the lady in your life, she probably likes jewelry. And who knows, maybe you're thinking of popping the question, well, you need some jewelry for that. So go to our jewelry store, whatever you buy, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. And I'll be glad to help you with that. And... Guys, the way I tell you about this is you can buy something special at Lady in Your Life to uh, make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special that Lady in Your Life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. It's such a joy to see them. Now, uh, Dr. Henderson, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, of course, I would like people to donate to the institution where I teach, which is Luther Rice College and Seminary. Um, And the website there is lutherrice.edu. So naturally, that's an organization I I would recommend donating to for the simple fact that our students need scholarships. So, uh, to get the very best in education, I, I think Luther Rice is a good school, a very competitive school and it's where I teach. So there you have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope we're, uh, have super direct. Can you tell us a website that people can go to for that? Yes. It's lutherrice.edu. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the, uh, Getting back to organ donations, what are some of the problems in just plain ethics that we have with organ donation? Um, sure. The, the main problem concerns whether we are killing patients to get their organs. If, as I argue, is the case, namely that brain death 
is not the death of the human person, then and the procedure that's used ends the life of that human organism or whatever they want to call it, the uh, biomort. I mean, there's some pretty disgusting sounding names that are attributed to the brain dead, um, heart beating cadavers, biomorts, um, and so on. And I find these these kinds of phrases, from my perspective anyway, to be demeaning. Uh, these kinds of, of attributions tend to diminish the the uh, viewpoint of what that is that's laying there on the gurney. That warm body that's pulsating, still pulsating with life, is referred to as a heart-beating cadaver or a biomort, a subhuman of some kind. Um, so if I'm right that the brain dead are not dead and the organ procurement surgery is ending the life of that human organism, then that's a direct killing of a human being. And that's a very, for anybody who's sensitive to pro-life values, that's a very big problem. We cannot kill people because we can get some good out of them. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that this is intentional, but it's it's a problem nonetheless. I I believe that there are people who generally think that these are these are not human persons anymore, and so they have a problem stopping their hearts to remove them, or they the, the surgical procedure stops their hearts when they're taking them out. So that's the that's the biggest moral ethical issue, I think, right there. The other ones I've already mentioned concerns um, violation of, of the informed consent process. And the informed consent process is built upon particular moral norms, and they have to do with justice, with beneficence, and non-maleficence, and respect for autonomy. Those are the four principles of bioethics that are pretty much taught in all medical schools today. They come from the book by that name, Principles of Bioethics by Beecham and Childress, it's a standard work that most people read today who study bioethics. And every one of those principles, in my view, is being violated, which I discuss in my book in that particular chapter, chapter uh, six. In the process, you're, you're, you're not respecting a person's autonomy by you know, failing to give them the information they need to make an informed decision. You're, you're basically saying, we don't think you can make that decision. We're, we're not going to grant you that ability. That's a violation of respect for autonomy. It's a violation of the principle of justice as well. And it's, it's a violation of non-maleficence because you're actually doing harm to a person. You say, well, they're unconscious. They won't know. Uh, you, can, you can do harm to people who aren't aware of it. You can, you're still doing harm to them. And then there's the principle of beneficence, which means you do good. You know, you, 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 it's, a, it's, it's an active thing that you're doing good for the, for the person, for the patient. And uh, you're, you're basically not doing that when you violate the informed consent process. So all four of those principles, I think, are moral principles are violated uh, by a lack of concern for in the informed consent process. So those are, those are just a few things, and they're all major in my mm-hmm. view. Uh, I couldn't but think of how uh, there was so much controversy. Maybe a year ago or so when someone 
got some secret videos they taken of Planned Parenthoods, right. and talking about taking body parts of babies and using them for various things. And you're right. saying we're doing the same thing with adults and teenagers and such, right? Yeah, I mean, like I said, if 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 you don't care that that happens to your body, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But I think a lot of people might care, and if you're not telling them that their their body parts and even their bodies could be used for medical experiments, um, one of the things that came out when I was uh, uh, at that at that conference I mentioned earlier in Seattle um, was that. Uh, in the, in the question and answering time, there were people there who actually, you know, admitted to me that brain dead patients were used for medical experimentation. After all, you got a heart beating body there. Mm-hmm. So they will inject particular medications, drugs into that person to see how that, to see how that body reacts to it. And if they can declare that person dead, then in their minds, they're not causing any harm. To that mm-hmm. person. After all, that person has donated their body to science because that's what you do when you become an organ donor. You're donating your body to science, and your your organs may not be used uh, for transplant purposes, but your body may be experimented on. Um, and granted, and I grant this, there have been some particular drugs that have come out of those experiments that are beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, today to us, but that doesn't mean that we should be doing it. It's sort of like saying, "Well, the Nazi doctors came up with some really good information from experimenting on on Jews in the concentration camps." Yeah, it's it's good information, but it doesn't mean it should have been done. I mean, uh, you know, the end does not justify the means, and and so. These are very important things that have to be considered. We have to draw distinctions, yes, but at the same time, we have to recognize that we can't violate the dignity of human beings, and we have to treat them respectfully. So uh, the medical community says that they do that, and you know, we no longer live in a, in a time and a day where medical paternalism is the name of the game. That has basically gone away in terms of you know it just being the acceptable thing and it's been replaced with respect for the autonomy of patients to make those decisions for themselves but they have to rely upon physicians to give them the information to do that uh, I mentioned in my book the sort of watershed ar- uh, article that came out in 1973 uh, written by Beecher called the, the uh, generaliza- generalization of expertise. And in that, he was critiquing medical paternalism. Um, and it's the idea that physicians have an expertise, and they should, but they shouldn't, go be, they shouldn't be expected to go beyond that area of expertise and make value judgments for patients. In other words, physicians are experts in medicine, but they're not experts in morality for their patients. So patients need to be given the expertise that the physician has, but not told what to do. In other words, the patients need to make those decisions for themselves based upon the information that they get. And I think that's right. I think it makes sense. And so when that's violated, then we have a a breach of uh, ethics that takes place when when that happens. I guess you could – I guess in a way, Nick, you could say I I like that – 
I like to use that fallacy when I teach uh, when I teach logic because I I bring it out. It's, this can happen in in any field of study. You know, when you have one group of scholars telling another group of scholars their business, what they're you know they think because they're experts in one area, they're an expert in every area. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. So I, I think it's a good fallacy to keep in mind in in ways outside of the medical practice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've typically come across this kind of problem several, several times, and it does seem to happen a lot with the sciences and such. We can point to, for instance, for writings of the books by the New Atheist. Yeah. Yeah, when they come out of it. Richard Dawkins is excellent, I'm sure, in zoology and biology, but he mm-hmm. does not have a clue in philosophy and history right. and biblical exegesis and such. And I can certainly say from my perspective, reading the books on New Atheist opened my eyes to one thing, that I don't want to be making those same kinds of mistakes. So, you know, right. in my personal projects and here on the show, right, if I'm not an expert in the area, I don't talk about it. Yeah. Now, we, we obviously have to rely upon experts in areas that we don't have an expertise in, but we and we can do that and we can take that and put it in forms of arguments. I mean, we do that all the time. But what you have going on with the new atheists is that they're is that they they're being well what people are doing is they're treating them as if they're expertise across the board, experts across the board. And the result of that is that these guys are being given much more than they should be given. And they make really bad arguments, like you say, as a result, they're pontificating in disciplines that they have very little to no knowledge about. Yeah. So now when we're talking about this, some people could look and say, well, geez, this is all well and good, but you're talking about a problem, mm-hmm. but you're not saying anything so far about a solution. What kind of solutions do you see to this? Yeah, I have I have a number of solutions that I, in one major policy recommendation that I make in the seventh chapter of my book. I, I, I'm hopeful, as I said earlier, that those prospects on the horizon will one day come to fruition. I'm talking about growing growing organs from one's own cells that will take the place, it will fill the gap, the lack of resources, lack of available organs for transplantation. Uh, that's not here yet. So something has to fill the gap right now. And so what I recommend is a, for, is a form of what's called non-heartbeating organ donation. So basically what we're trying to avoid is directly killing a patient, right? That, that's, that's, I said, is the major ethical problem, right? So how do we avoid that? Well, we, we, we can still take brain-dead patients and instead of wheeling them into the OR and starting cutting, you know, infusing them with paralyzing agents so they don't jump around on the table when we stick the scalpel in them. What we should do instead is put them into a, a situation in which we are slowly removing the uh, life-sustaining uh, equipment. So we wean them off the ventilator. And then when, when that person... Uh, quits breathing and their heart heart stops beating. We we use a protocol, such as two minute protocol has been suggested, four minute protocol, five minute protocol, six minute protocol. In other words, we wait for a short period of time after their heart stops. And that that period of time helps us to know that 
whether or not they're going to spontaneously resuscitate. In other words, yeah, they're really dead before we proceed with the organ retrieval surgery. That way, the, the surgery itself is not ending their lives. And so we're following the principle of we're recognizing the distinction between killing and allowing to die. We're recognizing that, that this person, uh, uh, either they or a surrogate, their family members, have have given us the information we need to know that this person would not want to be kept alive in this way. And so they recognize this as extraordinary care. You know, I, I talk about this in the Christian tradition recognizes the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary care. And that's determined by the patient. So the patient recognizes this. And, and no one is, a, is obligated to continue with a, a modality of treatment that they consider to be extraordinary. And by extraordinary, I mean something that is overly burdensome and is not going to benefit you know, the patient down the road. So um, I don't want to mix futility there too much with that. But at the same time, this decision is being made by the patient or the patient's surrogates. And so we're recognizing the informed consent process, and we're also able to to honor their requests for organ donation without directly killing them. So we're allowing them to die, letting, making sure that they have died, and then removing the organs. And, you know, we didn't talk about this in detail, Nick, but one of the early problems that led into the uh, Harvard Ad Hoc Committee um, recommending what they didn't call it brain death back then, but irreversible coma, was that they thought this would be a better way to get fresher organs because they didn't have ways to preserve the organs back then, especially hearts. Hearts are, are hearts and lungs are organs that diminish very quickly once they're removed from the body, uh, unlike kidneys. And so it was hard for them to get those hearts and lungs transplanted in, in time that they were viable. And so they thought that brain death would, would enable them, it would close the gap of time, enable them to get them fresher organs. Well, now we don't have to worry about that because we have better medications now we can infuse those organs with quickly once they're removed to sort of put them in stasis before we transplant them and get them started again. And so I, I suggest that we don't even really need brain death anymore because we, we can we can do so much more than what we used to. So I don't I I think we can solve a number of problems here. So you know I do offer alternatives. They're there in chapter seven of my book. And the good news, Nick, is and I I'm not I'm not taking credit for this because I just don't know. The good news is that I had Alan Schumann told me this a couple of years ago that it looks like the non heart beating organ procurement uh model is the way most organs are, are retrieved these days. So it seems like there is some movement away from the old brain death standard where they just went in and, and you know paralyzed the patient and, and started cutting out organs when their hearts are still beating. So I think there's been some positive move uh, into that direction that I suggest in, in chapter seven. Because I think you've got accounts in the book even of people are that the organs are going to be removed, and there's even some resistance on the part of a patient. Yes. That's one of the really, really frightening things about that. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is, is that 
in, I believe it's in the United States, we paralyze the patient before we surgically remove the organs. And the reason why they do that is because when they've tried to uh, surgically remove the organs, the patient, the dead, the brain dead patient <laughs> will start to move violently on the table. And there are accounts of, you know, the arms coming up and, and swiping, the hands swiping at the scalpel. And the explanation for that is, well, those are just automatic reflexes coming from the spine. Those aren't coordinated. They're not directed uh, by the brain. After all, this person is brain dead. That's what the defenders of brain death have said. But that, that scene itself has caused a lot of nurses to not want to be involved in organ procurement surgeries because it freaks them out. So they had to start paralyzing these patients to do that. And in Great Britain, they also give anesthesia to brain dead patients before they remove their organs. And the reason for that is, is because in Great Britain, they have a different standard that's called brainstem death. And so to, to, just to make sure there's no residual consciousness left in the patient when they start to cut the patient open, they not only will paralyze the patient, but they'll give them anesthesia, you know, just in case they might, they, there still might be some consciousness left before removing the organs. Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect that people might want to know that before they agree to be organ donors, right? It, it sounds like someone comes straight out of a horror film. Yeah, it does. And, and sometimes people don't believe me when I tell them this, but it's documented in my book. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that side of it that, it, you know, nobody likes to talk about death. You know, it's, it's, it's not a topic of dinner conversation, you know, dinner table conversation. Mm -hmm. I, whenever I bring up that with my wife, she's like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, you bring them, oh, you know, one day I'm going to be gone. I don't want to talk about that. You know, well, we need to talk about what happens, I get a life insurance policy, you know, and I'm, I want to talk about this. I just, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, nobody likes to talk about it, but we have to. And, and I think that's why there's not a lot of attention given to this subject because it's a rather morbid topic. You know, yeah, but do you have hope for the future with organ donation? Do I have hope for the future? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I do. I, I every every now and then I see another article talking about a new advancement that they think they're about to make that will benefit organ organ transplantation mm -hmm. that will fill the gap. And so uh, it seems like we're creeping forward with some of these things and it may not, we may not be too far away uh, from the possibility of, of restoring hearts. I mean, uh, and, 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 you know, brain death is used primarily as a means for obtaining hearts, you know, for transplantation. So there's, there's some promise that, that seems to be there. I, again, I document that in my book and then there's some more recent material on it that suggests that, we may be closer to that kind of thing where we can, we can regrow heart tissue, heart muscle uh, onto a, a form and, uh, you know, maybe one day transplant a heart from a person's own tissue. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's a hope that I have. And, 
I, I really think we need there needs to be a a realistic view about this kind of thing. I there was a student, a fellow student of mine, uh, at, when I was at Duquesne. I told her what I was writing my dissertation on, and she was an older lady, and she said, and she said, well, she says my position is that if I ever needed an organ donation, I just refuse it. I just accept the fact that it's my time to go, and. Uh, you know, I, I I sometimes wonder if if we're fighting so hard against our own mortality that we you know maybe we need to have a more realistic, sober look at things. And you know, I remember Christopher Hitchens one time criticizing Christians along these lines when he said, "You guys talk about how you can't wait to go to heaven." He says, "But when it comes down to a decision about whether you're going to go with a very risky medical procedure to to give you a little more life." Then die says you will choose the former every time, you know, and I I can't help but wonder if you might have a point there, you know we're not going to live forever in in these bodies in this world, and yet we seem to want we seem to try to try to do that. That seems to be one of the major themes of Ecclesiastes. I think that all of us have eternity in our hearts. Right, and yet somehow we know that something's wrong because we see people are dying all around us. Yeah, and certainly it's more understandable for me when it when we're talking about younger children, young people, mm-hmm. than it is for older folks. And I hate to sound that way. <laughs> I don't want to like sound like I'm I'm saying there's more value in in young people, the life of a young person and an old person, but there's a sense in which. There, there's a fairness issue here, I think. Uh, when you have to making a decision between giving this liver to Frank Sinatra, an old man who has a has a cirrhosis of the liver versus a younger person, um, I have an inclination to and a tendency to think that we should go with the younger person. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that just seems to me to me to be an issue of fairness. Now. Our uh, listeners might be willing to go and get a living wear a power of attorney and such, yeah. you know, to change their status and such after this. Is there anything more they can do to bring about change in the whole ideology of organ donation? Like, should they write to their congressman or things like that? Well, uh, I, I would encourage that. I suspect that their congressmen won't know what in the world they're talking about because, you know, one of the problems here is that nobody thinks we we have a broken system in in light of this. But I think what we need is we we need we need more people writing and 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 getting this information out there so more and more people become interested in it. Um, yeah, writing the, their congressman is is a good thing. It could be helpful, but. What needs to be exposed here, especially to lawmakers, is the is the violation of the doctrine of informed consent. If we can make that case and show that that is in fact occurring, um, I think that's that's what might get the attention of lawmakers. Now, Grant, you know, you have to remember that there are lobbyists out there uh, for these organ transplant, organ donation centers, who stand to lose money. Okay, <laughs> they they will feel threatened. Um, by these these kinds of actions, and so there will be a strong opposition. It's unfortunate this is the way things work, but it is. Um, I ran into some of these folks 
at, at a hospital in Pittsburgh uh, when I was uh, doing a clinical there at a, at a, in an ICU at a hospital there. And there was a patient who they thought was on the verge of dying who was an organ donor. And the particular organ donation group in that, in that region showed up. It was interesting to see the response of the physicians and nurses. They did not let them in the wing at all. They viewed them as vultures just waiting to pounce on this person. And so I went out, out, I went out in the hall and I talked to them and began to ask some questions about these issues that, that we've talked about, Nick, and especially about informed consent and my worry about ethical violations. They would they didn't want to talk about it. They they would they would tell me things they would say things like, Well, here here is what I consider an ethical problem. All those good organs going to waste in that person, you know, when other people could use them. That's the ethical issue I'm concerned about. So they, they just completely turn it, you know, turn it turn it around, uh, turn it away from the issue that I'm raising. And they're very, very defensive. So that's a strong lobby that's out there. Um but anyway, that's that's what I would suggest. Getting this information out, um, I'd like to see more evangelicals engaged in this research. Professors in schools promoting research into this area, seeing more theses and dissertations written, more articles uh, written. I presented an article at the ETS meeting a couple of years ago on this subject. I had a handful of people in the room. It's just you know, there needs to be more interest in that in this subject you know mm-hmm. people need to see that if we're really pro-life we should care about this so what would you say to a pro-life crowd listening right now about this i would say that you need to look into it i need to ask yourself a question is what i say at the beginning of life consistent with what i'm saying about the end of life am i consistent in that do i really there really hold up both ends of the spectrum in a consistent manner. The argument that I use here, am I applying equally over over there? That's that's I think what I I think is worth taking a look at. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if we're not, then what what do we do about it? just studying more, or what exactly? Well, I I think you need to recognize what the issues are and. Um, because you, you got to understand it before you can, before you're going to care about it, mm-hmm. and uh, then it need, then there's needs to be some ad, some advocacy on behalf of this issue. You know the way it's presented to us now is you know the good of organ donation. You feel good about it. They it, it, it's promoted it in these altruistic terms, and and so people just accept that. Yeah, like you said earlier. Yeah, I. I'm, well, I'm not going to use my organs when I'm dead anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's the end of it. But that's not the end of, the, of it. There's a process. There, there's, you need to understand what, how it works. You know? And then when you, when you, I think when people understand and see how it works, then they're, then they're going to care about it more. And they're going to want to make sure that the means are ethical to that good end. You know, So... That, that's that's how I would look at it. That's that's what I would uh, encourage people to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buy, my, buy my book. I mean, read my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like you were channeling John Loftus just now, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of your book, I was just getting ready to tell people about it. The book is Death and Donation, Rethinking Brain Death as a Means for Procuring Transplantable Organs. 
Right now, as of the time of this recording on Amazon, the Kindle version is $9.99. The hardcover is $43, and the paperback is $25, and I'm sure you'd have no problem telling people, give a paperback or Kindle, and just save a little sure. bit of money, right? Absolutely. I didn't know there was a hardcover available, so there you have it. So <laughs> Now, uh, Dr. Anderson, do you have a blog and email website where people can get in touch if you want to find out more? I think the best the best way for people to tap into my stuff is to go to the Luther Rice website, and uh, they can find my profile there. If they go to lutherrice.edu and click on the faculty and staff link and find my my bio and 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 my information, they open up. I have my own page there. It has all my information. It has links to different resources. Um, to my blog, which has not been very active recently, and and a link to my book and some other things, some resources there that people might might find helpful. So that's the that's the best way to do it. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I just I just want to say how much I appreciate you, Nick, and what you're doing. I I've gotten to know you personally over the last few months and. And I really appreciate your your heart and your spirit, mm. and the the good fight that you're fighting. And I hope your audience appreciates that. I, you bring some really really great people on here. Uh, I was shocked to see the great scholars you bring on here, and and I was humbled that you would ask me to come on here as well. And so I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage your audience as well to continue to support your ministry and and to support this podcast. It's it's a great thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. No, no worry. I, I will be pointing out checking my mail to you now. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, I, I, I've tried to get the best that I can on here to, to get people in. Sometimes people just ask me, how do you give them on this? Usually I just ask them. It yeah. seems to work pretty well because a lot of people just like to support sure. their own work and such. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope we will see you back here again sometime. Hopefully, Nick. I appreciate it. I'd like to remind everyone better. Next week, we're going to have Nancy Piercy on, talking about her book, Love Thy Body. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>